Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the final word story time. Uh, back on the weekend where it belongs. We've uh, finally got things calibrated once again. I'm Jeff Lemon. The other person you will hear in a minute is Adam Collins. This is uh, the history show that we do on the final word where we wander back through the laneways, the byways, the highways, the myways of. Uh, the great game of cricket and, and discover the stories waiting therein. Uh, it hasn't just been the great game of cricket for the past couple of weeks. It's been the great game of Winter Olympics. I never knew that I wanted to watch Norwegians throw up before this, but um, <laughs> watching the cross-country ski races, everybody who finishes just collapses on the snow yeah. and then pukes. I'm not sure why. I, I suppose there are other recreational things that people do that lead them to throw up where you wonder why they do it as well. But look, each to their own, I suppose. And, and Adam, I, I, I note, I've just got the subject line here, that you received an email during the week, uh, and the subject was Hungary skating cricket. <laughs> yeah, I was always clicking that. Um, it, it sort of reflects the different times of day that we're doing the Guardian coverage. You're doing in the daytime in Beijing, so you're getting the cross-country skiing. I'm getting the fun stuff at night. I'm getting the luge. I'm getting the short track speed skating mm-hmm. and the, 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 the long track oval traditional speed skating as well. I'm getting the freestyle aerials at night, the team event uh, that finished mm-hmm. there. Uh, I'm getting a lot of curling. Uh, but the short track speed skating where there was probably the most controversy during the week, with the exception of the, the team's figure skating event, which um, they're still yet to do the medal ceremony for. Eek. But the men's... Ooh, I want to say the men's... The fifth Russians? And- <laughs> Drugs? The ra- Really? The Russians who aren't allowed to compete as Russia because of all of the doping are still doping? I'm I'm shocked. I'm stunned. Yeah, I I don't think this is alleged to be performance enhancing for the 15-year-old, and she is protected by WADA because she's a minor, and she's an absolute genius. So I truly hope that that this isn't as bad as it looks. But yes, watch this space. But yeah, the short track had a quite controversial finish to the, I think it was the men's 1500, maybe it was the men's 1000. That was the men's 1000 earlier in the week where the Hungarian skater, there's a pair of brothers, there's Shaolin Sandalou and his brother Shaolong Lu and uh, Shaolin, the the former of the two, uh, crossed the line first, but he was later disqualified like 10 minutes after the race. Mm. Uh, It was a shocking sort of... uh, administrative weight and this often happens in short track by the way they they have to review a number of moments in in the race and he got he got the pull the plug pulled and initially anyway it looked like he'd been rubbed out for what he did in the final meter of the thousand meters which is just you know horrible for him but um 
I got an email about it by a, a man by the name of Gabor Torok. Uh, he says here, uh, Dear Mr. Collins, I'm a, an Australian-Hungarian living in Budapest. On episode 78, Storytime, you mentioned the Hungarian skater who won gold only to have it taken away due to a disqualification. A, a piece of trivia that you might find interesting. The commentator on Hungarian national television doing the speed skating was one of the two main cricket commentators at Eurosport Hungary when cricket was launched in 2000. 2009. And the other main cricket caller from back then is still at Eurosport and he is covering the speed skating for Eurosport at these Olympics. So that would have been uh, one of the commentators I was listening to on, on OBS. He goes on to say, so the two original Eurosport cricket commentators simultaneously called the speed skating race where Hungary almost won a gold medal. I did the special comments next to those two gentlemen at Eurosport in the good old days when they covered cricket between 2009 and 2014. Not worthy of a nerd pledge, but I thought I might share it with you. Uh, keep up the good work and take care. Gabor Tarok. Gabor, thank you uh, for that link back. Uh, upon reading this, Jeff, I'm like, oh, I've never been to Budapest. Oh, I wonder whether Jeff wants to go to Budapest. Should we do some hungry cricket at some point? <laughs> hungry eyes. One look at you and it made me realize. Yeah. Um, Have you been there? Why not? Well, I haven't I haven't been to, to Budapest. The only... When I think of Budapest, uh, what it brings to mind is there's an episode of MacGyver uh, in which MacGyver has to go to Budapest to to obtain a microfilm that's hidden in the, the back of a watch, <laughs> uh, I believe. And, and, and so he has to link up with the underground there because the Soviets are in charge and get the microfilm and then, and then the Soviets are onto them and they've got to escape from Budapest and somehow they end up at a racetrack and MacGyver goes, let's get into these three minis uh, a red one, a white one, and a blue one to escape from the Soviets. And from then on, they straight up just rip off all of the car chase footage from the Italian job, from the original Italian job with Michael Caine. Now, bear in mind, this is a show made in the mid-'80s, and the Italian job was presumably mid-'60s, I'm guessing. Yep. Um, the grain of the film is completely different. You can clearly tell it's from... A, like, obviously, the studio had just owned the rights to the Italian job, and they were like, well, fuck it. We're not going to pay to do a whole new car chase. Just use the one we've already got. And so, apparently they're fleeing from Soviets in Budapest but all of the police cars chasing them have Italian flags painted on the side and say <laughs> Polizia um, and then they proceed to like get do a car chase around the Trevi fountain and then through the catacombs of Rome and then across the dam wall and all the rest of it. It's very clearly Italy but the people making MacGyver were like no one in America is going to know. Europe Budapest. Um, so that's all I can think of when I think of Budapest is the 17 minutes out of the 24 minute episode that MacGyver ripped off from the Italian job so they didn't have to shoot their own shit. <laughs> the inspiration for how they go about their short track speed skating in an agricultural fashion. It's a bloody travesty. They're not going to take a medal from the event, by the way. They, they just got bundled out of the of the 5,000 metre men relay at the semi-final stage with the with the Lou brothers not able to trouble the scorers on the medals. Anyway, enough about Hungarian speed skating for one episode of The Final Word. But it's been... I've really enjoyed the Winter Olympics so far and, um, and can't wait for the second week. So, yeah, if you actually um, are into this kind of stuff, Jeff's doing it uh, in the morning and I'm doing it in the night, Beijing time. Uh, Jeff, into what we're what we're actually talking about today. Uh, we have a lot to come. We have some stories to tell you. How do we do it? Let's do it via the mechanism of a little bit of a nerd pledge. I've got to yell over the top of a helicopter that you might be able to hear in the background that's coming over the top of my backyard right now. Nerd pledge. It's a game 
that we play. So this is fun. This is these are good times. Uh, it's a game we play with people on the patron page. They support the show. They fund the show, and they do that by sending us contributions. But the contributions don't come in in the form of what you would normally see on a coin or a note, a normal denomination of currency. It's a specific one because it relates to cricket in some way, and we have to work out what that means. First cab off the rank this week. Joel Emmonson, return pledger, one dollar and six cents AUD. So one oh six. It could be ten point six. It could be uh, 106, could be all kinds of things from Joel. He sent a clue as well. He did. The clue reads, possibly the oldest Jody Hicks, but more than likely just a lack of up-to-date detail on this cricketer. Mm, Joel, you know our areas. You know our final word <laughs> areas. Uh, the oldest Jody Hicks. Now, Jody mm. Hicks, for those who are not familiar, is um, the, the inaugurator, the owner, really, of the TFC, the Thanks for Coming. 32 matches in the Big Bash League. Didn't get to bowl in any of them. Got to bat in five of them. Jody Hicks, thanks for coming. Uh, much better cricketer than that. Uh, has still been doing good things in Sydney. Mm. Uh, grade cricket, the level down even over this last season. However, so the oldest TFC was what I was looking for. Right. And so I wound it back to who is the first woman in international cricket to record a thanks for coming? <laughs> and this... This is uh, a woman by the name of Thelma McKenzie, who was born in 1915. So she was 32 when she played her only test match for Australia in Wellington against New Zealand, obviously. So this being 1948, in the test match, they had 19 players on debut Mm. out of the 22 because... Australia hadn't played since 1937. New Zealand hadn't played since 1935. And some pretty good players on debut as well. I reckon we talked about this Wellington 1948 test match like a month ago or something like that. So it comes up again. We don't we don't rig the order. You would have done because I think you were talking about Betty Wilson, the great star of of the women's game, and she was on debut. As was in, um, in as this was match. Una Paisley, wasn't she, who made the hundred on yes. debut? Yeah, well, basically almost all of them were. So the, mm. the only players who weren't were Margaret Marks for New Zealand, who played precisely two test matches, one in 1935 and one in 1948, uh, and then two Australians, Amy Hudson and Molly Flaherty. And Molly Flaherty was, uh, you know, she had big, a big reputation. It was reported. So Thelma McKenzie was the wicketkeeper for New South Wales, and when she kept wicket to Molly Flaherty, she had to stand back because they called Flaherty the Lindwall of women's cricket. <laughs> he was the pace... Uh, impresario of the time, the benchmark. They really love doing will. that in cricket through that sort of, mm-hmm. uh, I wouldn't say early era, we're not quite early era by 1948 but you know, uh, the Black Bradman for example, or in this case, mm-hmm. the, you know the, the Lindwall of women's cricket like in order, in order yeah. to sort of, in that sort of patronising way. In many ways Bradman was the white George Headley um, <laughs> and, and I think we should start to correct the record by going <laughs> that way, I think that would that would be only fair, you know what, what do you make, 10 hundreds in 22 test matches? Mm. Um, not bad going. So so, yeah, the Lindwall of women's cricket, apparently. Um, they play this match, Australia bat first. The the three who would become the big three all make runs. Molly Dive, who's got her name on the stand at North Sydney Oval, made 59. Una Paisley, who would go into captain Australia, made 108. Betty Wilson makes 90. They declare on 3.38 for six, Thelma McKenzie's due in next, doesn't get a bat. And then they bowl out New Zealand for 149, using seven bowlers, not using Thelma. You know, rude, rude. Betty Wilson takes four wickets and then enforce the follow-on. Betty takes six more, bowl them out for 87. So they win by an innings. 
Selmedes doesn't get the chance to bat a second time because no one bats a second time. The worst part of all of this is that Thelma McKenzie is a wicketkeeper, but she didn't get to keep wicket. There was there was another <laughs> keeper called Lorna Lata who got the gloves, one catch and one stumping. And so Thelma, who was the keeper for New South Wales, they're like, well, we'll, we'll bat you at eight. You won't get to keep and you won't even get to roll the arm over. <laughs> um, so I was interested to know more about it. I, I tracked this back from, you know, this this was the tip from Joel. And I, I found in in the archives some pictures of her in the newspaper. There's some, some pictures of her batting. There's pictures of her wicket keeping. And there's an article from November 1948. So this is nine months later after this test match. And they've got a, a test against England coming up in January 1949. And here's this article. I mean, talk about patronising. Here's the, you know, Mrs. Thelma McKenzie spends most of her life looking at stumps. During the week, she works for a Sydney dentist. On Saturdays, she is a star wicket keeper. When the English opening bat women take the field in the first test at Sydney, it's a safe bet that Mrs. McKenzie will be behind the stumps again. And then this is the bit that makes you puke. Mrs. McKenzie doesn't put steak in her wicket-keeping gloves. She would rather cook steak than wear it. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, uh, anyway, the, even worse than this almost is that this article's in the paper in, in November um, 48 saying it's a safe bet that she'll be behind the stumps again. But she isn't. She doesn't get picked. Lorna, Lorna Lata gets picked ahead of her and they decide not to play a wicketkeeper at eight who doesn't get to keep. And so that was it. She didn't get to play another test match. Uh, so she had a thanks for coming in her only test. And I, I looked around. So on the sort of pages that, that have people's cricket information, none of them have a date of death, but she would be 106 if she was still alive, which is, oh, right. which is unlikely. And, and so I went looking for a death notice and I did find one in the paper for A. Thelma McKenzie in 2015. And McKenzie was her married name, so she was, but she was married before she started playing Test cricket. So she played right. under her married name. So I assume I'd be fairly confident that that would be her in 2015. That would make sense. So she would have know, reached. So in, in, all, in all probability, she died on 100. Yeah. Based on that, I think so. I think so. That's that's my. You know, I'm sure there are there are other Thelma McKenzies out there, and I did turn up a few. But yeah, I've, so I've got some very grainy bad photos of her from the, the newspapers from the Sydney Sun in 1948. If anybody wants a snap of Thelma McKenzie, let me know. The only thing with Joel's number is I have no idea about the 106. So I don't know what the provenance of the number is. I'm sure the answer's right because she is categorically the oldest Jody Hicks. Yep. But I don't know why it's 106. Okay. Well, first of all, great work. And I want to learn more about Thelma McKenzie. Maybe it isn't her. And maybe she is still alive at 106. And if she is, I'd say send through your match fees and get the pints in. Now, you may not have got a batter or a bowl, but you've still got your responsibilities to the team. So get us oh, a beer. On. The 106 is because she would be 106 if she was still alive. Oh, there maybe you go. she is still alive. Oh, it, there it is. Well, either that or it's possible that what Joel has done is he has gone through the same process you did. He's looked in the usual places for a, for a, mm-hmm. you know, a death date, which you often get on Crick Info or, or Wikipedia even for that matter. Um, there's a lot more on Wikipedia for women's cricketers than Crick Info for what it's mm-hmm. worth. But in the absence of it, he's assuming she's still alive and 106. Uh-huh. Whereas you've gone into which the death notices. Is. And maybe she is. I, maybe I it's a different thing. I don't want to write her off, Thelma. I don't want to, I don't want to be, you know, we can work this out. demise have been exaggerated. <laughs> 106 is not exactly without precedent. I mean, Eileen Ash passed away recently when she was 109. Yes. Um, so uh, th- there must be something in it, uh, being a, a women's cricketer from that era and living to a, a very 
old age. Uh, yeah, but th- there'll be someone out there listening. I- I'm convinced of this. There'll be someone listening to this podcast who will be able to tell us the, the rest of the Thelma McKenzie story. And if you can, please let us know. Between times, Jeff, can you please post those photos uh, in the Discord group? Uh, I want to have a look at those. I will. And, um, I will. That's a great way to start the show. So, Joel Emerson, thank you. And please get in touch during the week. The second number this week is a beauty, 1654 in AUD. We'll forget about the AUD for the answer I'm about to give. Uh, it's from Nick <laughs> Coots, and it has a clue. Yes, the clue says, not a groundbreaking progression, but an interesting development by a fast bowler. Yeah, mm. okay. I've had to interpret this liberally at the business end of my answer. I'm going to tell you the story <laughs> of a bowler that we have never discussed on the final word before. And now I feel bad for this because we have gone through many South African cricketers who otherwise would have played test cricket. But this might be the best. This might be the best cricketer who didn't get an opportunity to play uh, due to the era in which he was doing his thing uh, through the isolation period. Uh, Vincent van der Beel, he was a giant, 202 centimetre seamer. And the 1654, that's his first class bowling average. Uh, So it's almost exclusively for Natal between 1967 and 1980 and of course South Africa are in the wilderness from from well 1971 72 and beyond uh, but he took 767 first class wickets at 16.54 uh, on really good batting tracks for the most part in South Africa so I uh, We'll go through the story, but that alone is significant. I mean, how are you how are you taking your wicket so cheaply in such a strong first-class comp uh, and over such a long stretch of time as well, playing for 14 seasons? But, yeah, very unlucky with his timing. To go back a bit, he's from a, a cricket-rich family uh, on the Cape, went to a posh school, played rugby. Because he was a big lad, he was a, he was a champion shot putter uh, as well. Um, he, he went on to start his career so well that in 1971, uh, he, when he was the South African domestic player, of the year he was picked for the the test team the tour uh, that was set to go to Australia in in 71-72 of course as we know that that never went ahead after the Oliveira um, saga and and that was that for them yeah and as I say he he went on to become as some have declared the best right arm seamer in the world uh, through that stretch of time in the mid 70s it's a massive call but and it's hard to back it up but just in terms of his his performances not only as a bowler but captain of Natal as well unusual to see a, a fast bowler as captain but he did that job and won a series of trophies. Doesn't work. Doesn't, no, doesn't work. work. We can all safely say <laughs> can't do it. <laughs> that worked for Big Vincent. Um, they won a number of trophies in, in that glory period in the mid-1970s. He was a teacher at the same time, so he wasn't able to do what a lot of cricketers did uh, and, and play county cricket and, and kind of earn a living playing in the Southern Hemisphere during uh, the Southern Summer and the Northern Summer uh, in, in the Shires. But uh, and that was Imagine part- if your teacher was 202 centimetres tall. Yeah. I know, right? Like, yeah. You would never act up. You'd be terrified. Oh, especially, like- well, especially a 202 centimetre former rugby player who probably would have went on to have been an Olympian in shot put who was taking sort of 70 wickets a year yeah. in first class cricket, which was a lot uh, given uh, they didn't play loads and loads of first class cricket each season, more more in keeping with the Shield schedule than the county schedule. But in 1980... Be, be like um, Mrs. Trunchbull. He'd be like launching kids over the fence. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but then in 1980, he took some leave from his job as a teacher and said, 
I want to go to England and I've got an opportunity to play for Middlesex under Mike Brearley in that fantastic Middlesex side of the late 70s and, and early 80s. And in that season, he took 85 wickets at 14.72. He was only behind Hadley and Garner, but he played a lot more cricket uh, than those two through the season. And he, yeah, he's part of that brilliant team that won both the county championship and the Gillette Cup that year with, with Wayne Daniels and, and Selvey, the other two principal seamers. In turn, he was named a, a Wisdom Cricketer of the Year in the 1981 of the good book. I spoke to Selv yesterday about him. He said he's the best cricketer to never play a test. He just declared it off the top. His stats are astonishing given he played in South Africa on pitches in a very, very competitive era there. I'm not sure there's ever been a better county attack than Wayne Daniel, Vince, myself, Edmonds and Edbury, which were the five who played for Middlesex that year. And some might say that that's self-talking himself up. But remember, he was a, a giant of the of the county scene at the time and he was effectively playing third fiddle to Wayne Daniel and Vincent van der Beel. Wisden, when they were writing him up in, in 1981, uh, said that uh, most of all, he brought a breath of fresh air with his immense enthusiasm, his love of playing cricket and his bubbling friendship for other cricketers. So a really nice write-up there uh, in the Almanac in, in 1981. Uh, just to throw in those one-day numbers, 132 wickets at 18 um, an economy rate of 2.7 so that's at list day cricket just gives you a sense of how penetrative he was they, they couldn't score off this dude full stop uh, he's got the most ever we had the most ever wickets for Natal the most ever wickets in a South African domestic season uh, he stayed in the game as well he works for the ICC as the umpires manager through the 2000s and, and yes 776 wickets at 16.54 Vincent van der Beel and in terms of bringing it back to, to the clue, an interesting development by a fast bowler. I'm taking that Nick as uh, his trip to Middlesex when it was interesting for a fast bowler well into his 30s uh, to play his first and only season in England and it did so splendidly winning a couple of trophies, 85 wickets at 14.72 as Sel said, maybe the best cricketer to never get a test match. Well, well, Bart King might have something to say about that. Dream dinner party. Um, (laughs) Let's go on to the next one in our list. That was very I didn't. I, I think. I think I'd mentioned. I th- I, like I remember the name popping up once or twice. I remember seeing a photo of him, and he did look like a school teacher. Mm. One of those sort of big, bald-headed, imposing-looking school teacher, like a Frank Tyson kind of right. school teacher. But yeah, I, I didn't know anything more besides about him besides that. Also, Nick, before we move on, you have won the slab of Brick Lane. This is a giveaway that happens for one person on the show every time we do no pledge uh, where the brick lane brewing community will give you a, a free slab of their best stuff uh, it, it's a giveaway so they can give it to you you can give it to someone else you you choose where it goes you get sent the option to direct it on so if you're not a fan of alcoholic beverages you can send it to someone who is uh if you like low alcohol options they have those too they uh, placed very high in the hottest 100 of beers uh, this year and last year they won the best beer in the world for their their pale ale well the best pale ale in the world for their at the world beer awards for their one love pale ale so they're doing good things and uh, winning friends wherever they go uh, the the nice people from adam's hometown dandenong yeah, I, I like this. There was a bit of correspondence during the week um, saying that uh, um, we should we should walk there from where I um, grew up in Dandenong West. It's not too far away, actually, as I realised later. So, yes, there's that extra personal touch for me. And also the very fact that they hire a lot of people in the southeast of Melbourne. Uh, they uh, 
are good citizens in terms of the materials they use. They're environmentally friendly on the way through. So uh, they're doing a lot that we can be proud of. Uh, and we're very proud of the, the performance they had in the Craft Beer Awards, the Gabs Awards that were announced um, at the end of January. So well played to them for getting two beers in the hot, hottest 100 and, and the One Love coming 21st. So proud of our association with them. Bricklanebrewing.com. Get yourself a slab. Next cab, VJ at Prabhadas, 206 USD. And there is a clue for this as well. Yes, there is. Okay, it reads, stats are true in this comp. Many tons. Luck ran out for Tony. They were bailing water out of the boat. No big lakes here. This is an island. A grave decision bowling those three. Okay. Oh, boy. <laughs> Have fun. Oh, VJ. Oh, VJ. Well, if you've listened to the show, you know you know we love cryptic crosswords <laughs> on the final word. So, all right, I had to get my head in the game for this one. Like, obviously, there were, there were clues in this, right? You've got to try to pull it apart. Stats are true in this comp many tons, and that's the bit that I got first. Hang on. Comp, tons, Compton. It's going to be about, probably not about Nick Compton, probably about Dennis Compton. Yeah. Uh, luck ran out for Tony. Tony Locke. Right. So I'm like, all right, there are other players' names in here. Bailing water out of the boat, Trevor Bailey. Big Lakes, got to be Jim Laker. Okay. And a grave decision, I thought, Tom Graveney. Um, and then I went back and looked at the stats. Stats are true in this combat. Hang on, stats is probably probably Statham, right? Not Jason Statham. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah. The, the bloke who bowled. So not I was like, like right. bloke with his old boy in a pie. <laughs> <laughs> No, that was that was Wally Hammond, um, <laughs> almost certainly, <laughs> almost certainly. Anything that happened in American Pie, Wally Hammond gave it a shot. <laughs> Wally Hammond and Hugh Tayfield. You know. <laughs> Imagine rooming with those two. <laughs> Jesus Christ! You wouldn't do much sleeping. Uh, <laughs> I feel like a salad bar, right? So, <laughs> I was like, can I find a game that involves Dennis Compton, Tony Locke, Trevor Bailey, Jim Laker, Tom Graveney? And Brian Statham. And yes, I found one at the Oval against South Africa, in which all six of those players played. And Statham had an economy rate in one of the innings of 2.06 and over, which is the number. So it was like, maybe. It's not very compelling. There's the bit in the clue, no big lakes here, this is an island. And then I realised they all played in the Caribbean in the 1950s. So in Kingston, well, five of them played. Statham didn't play. So they were on Jamaica, which is an island, and mm-hmm. Tony Locke had an economy rate of 2.06 in that particular innings. Uh, but again, that, that's, that's not that compelling. And then I looked at the first bit of the clue again. Stats are true, and I went, hang on, true, Truman's got to be in there as well. So I've got to find a match where all seven of them played. Right. And there is only one test match ever in which all seven Dennis Compton, Tony Locke, Jim Laker, Trevor Bailey, Tom Graveney, Fred Truman and Brian Statham all play in the same test match. They all played at Port of Spain on a matting wicket where the bowlers had no chance whatsoever, uh, where it was just a run fest in 1954, did I say? Yes. Um, The three W's all made hundreds in the same innings, something they did on a couple of occasions, I think, as in Walcott, Worrell and Weeks. All made hundreds. And Everton Weeks topped the lot. What did he make? 206. They were 681 for eight when they declared, went on to draw. That left the Windies up 2-1 with one to play. Why those names? Because in that first innings, when they're bowling, 
two Everton weeks as he makes his 206. There are seven bowlers used in the innings. They are Statham, Truman, Bailey, <laughs> Laker, Locke, Compton, Gravney. The end of the clue, a grave decision bowling those three. Tom Gravney bowled three overs, got smashed for 26 runs at 8.6 and over. And that is your answer, VJ Prabodas. Wow. Wow, that is that is immense from you, Jeff. There, there are some of these that, that you do like that, and I know I just could never do it. I mean, the way our brains work, there are some that I get which you wouldn't get and vice versa, but that definitely falls into the former category. A couple of things. How elated were you when opening the scorecard and scrolling down and seeing 206 next to the name of Weeks? I mean, what, oh, you must have been just... Yeah, I bet. And then realising the second bit with the the seven bowlers used there. VJ, outstanding. Great to have you part of what we're doing here. To the broader final word community please don't do that <laughs> please don't do close like um please don't do that because and because uh, uh, that that is uh that is verging on impossible i don't know how jeff's pulled that out of the out of the fire much sweat much sweat. i had to check every test match dennis compton had ever played to see oh. who he was playing with yeah they, these can uh they can be on, quite on the hope that that was right yes know? yes and, and that's that but nevertheless vj it's great to have you with us and um i'm glad we've uh, uh learned the story of uh, of port of spain in, in 1954 great stuff to 206. Next is Michael Bell. We've got a, a free swing on this one, Jeff. This was okay. 512 in AUD. Michael Bell, new pledger. G'day, Michael. Now, how's this? Jeff, you know my, and many listeners would know my obsession with things that kind of haven't happened or, or have happened twice after not happening for 70 years or something like that. Mm. I saw 5 for 12 and I kind of thought, well, you know, let's have a look at all of the times in international cricket when 5 for 12 were taken and there might be a couple of Australians who I can pick from. It's an AUD. I'll find a good story around Mm. one of the presumably many 5 for 12s. And there'll so be it'll George go. Loman or there'll someone in That's right. There'll, 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 be, there'll be many options. There'll be a Clary Groom at 5 for 12 somewhere. There'll be a Monty Noble 5 for 12. And away we go. I'm showing my, my thought process and my workings here with, with the free swings, but this is the process I was going through. There has only been one instance of 5 for 12 being taken in the history of men's international cricket, and it happened huh. two months ago. It happened on the 20th of November, 2021. It's happened six times in women's cricket, five of those in T20Is. But men's international cricket, where the sample size is so much bigger, up until November 20 last year, it had never been taken. In all of the one-day cricket around the world, in all of the T20 cricket, Hmm. all of the test matches played, 2,500 of them now, never five for 12 and it happened in a t20 international between kenya and nigeria uh, in the t20 world cup africa regional qualifier which is being played in rwanda which i'm pretty sure uh, and phil walker from wisdom cricket monthly actually heather uh, if she's listening they both walked up there didn't they and helped build that ground in rwanda about five or six years Mm -hmm. ago so i'm not sure if it was the same ground but i wouldn't be surprised if it was they were on that group that that played a role in, in in funding it i think as well anyway so it's kenya nigeria in the t20 Africa regional qualifier last year and Ray Patel uh, is our man here. A Kenyan 19 year old bowling left arm orthodox. He uh, made his debut just a couple of months earlier uh, against Nigeria. On this particular day Kenya uh, made 168 for 6 in their 20 overs. Their captain Irfan Karim made 52 not out. Nigeria were in some strife early on before Patel came into the attack but then he took 5 in a hurry Uh, they went from 47 for 3 to 89 for 7 by the time he was done. 4 overs, 1 one maiden, five for 12, Nigeria, all out in 16.2 overs for 108. Kenya didn't win the competition, which is kind of where I wanted to 
take this in, in the second part of the answer. It's a little bit sad when you think about it. Like the team that finished fourth in the World Cup in 2003, uh, we all know mm-hmm. what they achieved across three consecutive World Cups when they played in, in 96, where they won a game, of course, 99 and then, and then 2003 before they kind of fell off a cliff. But they don't advance beyond this qualifier. Only one team makes it through uh, to the next round. Uh, that's called the Global Qualifier. I'm not sure when that is this year. It's actually a bit of an indictment that I can't quite work out what the go is with that, that competition. Like just sort of Googling around. I mean, I'm sure if I made a couple of phone calls, I'd be able to resolve this, but it's emblematic of just how, I suppose, how, how complex the the layers of cricket are beneath that sort of full member nation bit when it comes to T20 cricket. Absolutely. Of, of course, they've been playing T20 International since, what is it, 2017, 2018? was when all of these matches became formally T20 eyes. But yeah, it's a bit it's a bit sketchy at the level below. But Uganda came first, so they go straight through. Kenya finished second. They don't have a chance of making the World Cup this year. Um, I actually played with a former captain of Kenya at Hampstead for a season, Ragabaga, um, who was a, a fine cricketer and played for them for about six or seven years and played some mm. county cricket as well. So I, I kind of felt them pretty closely through that stretch of time but they've never really threatened to push back to where they used to be. As for Vray Patel, let's hope it's not the last we hear of him. There's nothing else at all about him on the internet, I'd add. Let's hope there might be in the future because he's the only man to ever take 5 for 12 in international cricket. Well, they can't take that away from him and uh, you don't know this but one of my answers a bit later in the show will look at some slightly similar terrain. Um, okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Uh, our next number now this is awesome, right? And this is, okay. this is true in the sanctity of the spreadsheet. Our last number came from Michael Bell. Our next number comes from Michael Ball. <laughs> they pledged consecutively, one after the other. Michael Bell, you can be the Michael Bell of the Michael Ball. Here they are together at last, one in pounds, one in dollars. Yeah, which would suggest that, well, Bell is in Australia and, and Ball is in the UK. Maybe they should find each other in real life and become the best of friends. I mean, I've, I've um, yeah. there is another Adam Collins who occasionally gets tweeted into my feed because he's a he's involved in politics. He used to work for Rahm Emanuel, actually, as his spokesman. He's oh. kind of been involved in, in democratic politics. And, yeah, from time to time, he yeah, just sort of ends up in my feed or something about him ends up in, in my Twitter feed when someone gets the wrong handle or whatever it is. And I thought to myself, <laughs> maybe we should be friends. I should be pals with this guy called Adam mm. Collins from Chicago. Well, we can actually make that happen uh, on the final word, Michael Bell and Michael Ball. Uh, the latter has yeah. a clue for you for his 140 GBP. We will never know what might have been. Bell and Ball. If they, uh, who are those two who bowl in county cricket? Uh, Blatherwick and Balderson. Is that, yes, yes. Is that, who, who do they play for? Yeah, they're at Lancashire, so they they were um, bowling in tandem together. Uh, they ran a muck towards the end of the season. Actually, they got their opportunity, mm. and I'm, I'm sure we'll see more of them this year. Yes, Bell and Ball get together. So 140. Uh, we will never know what might have been. It was almost. Curtis Patterson, wasn't it? 144. <laughs> and it looks increasingly like he will knock off Andy Gantome for the highest average in Test cricket. I can't I can't see a, a path back into the team for Curtis Patterson at this point. It'll take another COVID wipeout. But, um, okay, there was that. That's obviously not there. And then I was thinking, okay, is this about cricketers who died young and... Phil Hughes had a partnership of 140 with George Bailey when he made his first one day hundred, his his ODI turn on debut. I think he's still the only is he the only Australian to have done that? He was certainly the first. I th- I think I he think, is. I think he still yeah. is the only one. Yeah, I am I'm pretty sure that's right, that he's the first and only. Hmm. So that was a one forty. It didn't seem 
that strong, but it got me looking at these kind of these kind of stories. There is Ross Gregory, and this this popped into my head. I thought Ross Gregory because he played two Test matches um, pre the Second World War, and then was killed during the war. Mm. He he actually played the last two Tests in the. 3-2 turnaround series, the one where Australia are trailing 2-0 and then oh, right. come back and win the last three test matches. So he played test four and test five in the comeback, which is pretty remarkable in itself. Player who debuted for Victoria when he was still at school, debuted for Australia just before his 21st birthday, made a half century in both of the tests that he played in. And had I knew he had this important partnership with Bradman and I thought, I wonder if it's 140 building the lead after they conceded a deficit on the first innings. They put on 135, not 140. Oh. Devastating. Also good to see in that test match that Wally Hammond was batting one spot below Joe Hardstaff. Um, classic <laughs> classic Hammond areas. Um, his family so. his family are going to find us, you know. They're going yeah. to find us and they're going to take legal action against us. Not yeah, our fault. Well, it's not our fault. <laughs> the, the truth will be our defence. All I can say is it's going to be a very big family for obvious reasons. Um, <laughs> So, so Ross Gregory, um, he had a bad domestic season and didn't get on the next Ashes tour and then the war stepped in and stopped cricket and he was on an RAAF bomber that crashed in Bangladesh uh, and he was he was the only Australian test cricketer killed in the war. But Michael Ball is pledging in pounds and so I thought it's probably got to be an English number. So I went back to the previous war and here is a story which is, I mean, this, this was, I hadn't actually, I didn't know much about Colin Blythe either, which is a bit shameful really, but 18 years old when he went to watch Kent play cricket one day, having never played cricket, like maybe he played in the street or something, but he'd never played organised cricket, didn't go to a school, he wasn't posh, he grew up in a poor area, he was the, the, the cause of a shotgun wedding when his mother was four months pregnant, he was the oldest of 13 kids, left home as a teenager to become an apprentice fitter and turner, and apt that he was a turner because he ended up being a left arm spinner, but he didn't know anything about cricket, he's just at the cricket watching it at 18, and there's a Kent player called Walter Wright who wants to get in the nets, and just goes, oi, you lads, and like corrals a few boys watching the cricket and says, come and bowl to me. And so Colin Blythe starts bowling to him. And Kent have this this sort of retired army brigadier type who's kind of fashioned himself as their coach who's floating about. And he sees this kid bowling and he goes, ah, oh, I like the look of him. He's got something in his action. So he sends him along to this place called Tonbridge Nursery, which was where Kent got likely types to go and train. And so Colin Blythe spends the 1898 season learning to bowl so 1897, never played cricket, doesn't know how. 1898, spends a year in the academy. 1889, makes his first class debut for Kent. Bloody hell. Takes a wicket with his first ball, plays four matches, and then in 1900, he takes over 100 wickets in the season. So <laughs> within the space of three years, basically, he's gone from zero to hero. 1901, he's on the boat to Australia with celebrity racer Starchy McLaren <laughs> and that team. Makes his test debut takes 18 wickets at 26 in the series in, in Australia. And he's... It was really interesting looking into him because he's he, he looked like he would have been a beautiful player. He's very tall, very slender, with long limbs, and he had this habit, apparently, of trailing his left arm all the way behind his back before right. it came out to deliver the ball. And there's some action shots of him bowling, and it really is right 
sort of, you know, just draped behind his back like a curtain in a breeze. I, I think I've seen this. I think some of this appeared, now you mention it, I reckon some of that real footage did the rounds on social media last year. So he gets to the crease with his arm almost, I mean, almost mm. behind his other hip on the other side of his body before getting to the, it's like, it's quite exaggerated, isn't it? But it's just wafting. So I, I, yeah. I've only seen still photos. I don't know if there's if there's okay. newsreel footage. But in the still shots, yeah, it's it's this very languid sort of sort of elegant action. So he has 14 seasons where he takes 100 wickets or more. 1907, he has a game where he takes 10 for 30 against North Ants. They follow on, and he takes seven for 18. So he's. <laughs> It's still the most by any bowler in one day. He took Goodness. 17 wickets in a single day of cricket. Finished up with 2,503 first-class wickets. So how does this match with we will never know what might have been from Michael Ball? I think it matches because he played 19 tests, which is a fair amount, took 100, exactly 100 test wickets, but he only ever played six tests in England where he was so good, where the conditions suited him best. And for whatever reason, the selectors at the time didn't like him. They didn't pick him much, particularly at home. And there were other good left-arm spinners around, you know, that's not exactly his era, but it's sort of overlapping with Rhodes at one end and, you know, Mm. the kind of Johnny Briggs and Bobby Peel and whatnot um, at the earlier end of things. But they just don't pick him that much. And so if you come to his last series of note... And he does. He plays two tests in South Africa after this, but this is at the time where the South Africa tours are treated as fairly in, inconsequential. They just send whoever's whoever feels like going, basically. But he plays in the Ashes of 1909, demolishes Australia in the first test, six for 44, followed by five for 58. And in the second test, he's got a, a medical problem and he's absent. And I think what this connects to is that he had epilepsy throughout his life. And I assume that, you know, the, the reports are a bit coy about that, you know, they don't say it was an injury, but they kind of vaguely say medical something, something. And so I'm assuming it has something to do with an epileptic seizure. So he makes himself available for the third test and just doesn't get picked despite 11 wickets in the first. Then they pick him for the fourth test. He takes five for 63 and then two for 77. It ends up being a draw. There's some rain involved. It's a three-day test. And then he gets dropped again for the fifth test. England lose. That was his last home test match. But the reason I thought this might match for the number from Michael, which is 140, is that his figures for the match in what was effectively his last his last significant test match, seven for 140. So that's where I went with that. And then after all of this, he's sort of in his mid-30s when the war breaks out. He's got epilepsy. He's got every excuse not to sign up, but he does immediately because he was a fitter and turner, signs up with the Royal Engineers, spends a couple of years building coastal defences and so on in England, plays an exhibition match against the AIF, gets Charlie McCartney out, and then he gets posted to France in 1917, and he's in the engineer corps that's laying down the light rail to move all the equipment down to the front lines at Passchendaele at the second mm. Battle of Passchendaele, and he got hit in the chest by a piece of shell shrapnel and died Gosh. immediately. So there's a memorial to him at Camp. Um, the Colin Blythe Memorial that's also names the other players, the other county cricketers who died during the war, but that's still there at the ground to this day. And I thought that's perhaps who Michael Ball might have been thinking of, Colin Blythe. I hope so. Uh, that was great. Thanks, Jeff. I'm glad you were able to tell that story. What, Yeah, what a great sort of era down at camp with Frank Woolley and Blythe and, 
and many others too. Um, Titch Freeman coming Titch in. Freeman just coming after that. in. Yeah, as you say, I, I didn't know that. I've been obviously to Canterbury many, many times, but I didn't know about that memorial. So I'll, I'll be sure to seek it out next time we're we're visiting for work through the course of 2022 at some stage. And uh, again, thank you to Michael Ball and Michael Bell. Next up is James Harding with 464. Uh, this is another free swing. Now, there aren't many interesting 464s uh, out of the eight in international cricket, I have to admit. This is where I initially thought, you know, that's the kind of number where you pull out an innings score. Again, I'm showing my workings a bit here, but you pull out an innings, you go, ah, that's a cracker because this happened and I'll, I'll tell that story. But when it was very relevant was the start of the 1901 Ashes series, Archie McLaren. Uh, you were just talking oh, about that series just so before. The one that Colin Blythe was Just on. before. Uh, so the start of the 1901 Ashes, um, 01-02 Ashes rather, the Archie McLaren team, it's not the sort of team that would normally go out there and I'll explain why in a moment. It might actually contribute to why um, Blythe got his opportunity. So the first innings of that series at the Sydney Cricket Ground, England make 464. Archie McLaren makes a, a fine century, but it's the only time in that series that either team uh, make it uh, beyond 400. It was a series dominated by bowlers, and we'll go into that in a moment. But yeah, the MCC didn't want to send the team. This was still in that kind of transition phase between privately funded England teams and the MCC getting involved more formally. This became the final privately funded series because um, the MCC weren't keen on it. So this was McLaren's team. But obviously we now retrospectively call it the England national team for the purpose of scorecards and, and all the rest of it. So they weren't quite at their best uh, because it was this privately funded enterprise. They, they didn't quite have the, the the same scope to pick players. So Wilfred Rhodes didn't go. Ranjasinghe didn't go. Stanley Jackson didn't go. CB Fry uh, didn't go. So they were depleted somewhat and as I mentioned before that 464 was was the high watermark for England uh, in that series with the bat indeed there are only three centuries in the whole series and, and McLaren I've got the first of those he he led England's runs with 412 at, at 46 uh, it was the series where they could have had a lot more centuries had Clem Hill not had that problem in the 90s he made in consecutive innings the 99 the 98 uh, and the 97 there at Adelaide for Australia with the ball uh, they took 90 wickets in the series 60 of them which is quite the achievement Two-thirds of the wickets they, they collected were via Noble and, and Trumbull, who, who were at their peak together. And then for England, and this is quite interesting, this was the series where Sidney Barnes gets taken uh, to play uh, international cricket for the first time. He takes 19 wickets in the first two test matches, including um, five for 65 in that, in that England victory to go one up in the series. Then in his second test at the MCG, he takes six for 42 and seven for 121 in a losing team at Melbourne. So it's it's level one all. Uh, the only reason he got on the tour was that McLaren had seen him at Lancashire. He'd only played seven first-class games, Barnes, at that point, and a couple of them were at the end of the 1901 season. And it was a, like a wild-card pick. No one knew who this bloke was straight out of minor counties cricket. And McLaren said... I'm taking you to Australia with me on, on this trip. And it was working. And then he got injured at Melbourne after over-bowling uh, in the second innings, didn't play again in the series, and that's when the whole thing twists and Australia get right on top. We've, we've spoken in the past about the pivotal test being at Adelaide where Australia chase a then-record 315 in the fourth innings where Hill makes 98 and 97. It's a brilliant victory by four wickets. And England hang in there, though. I mean, they eventually lose 4-1 after being 1-0 up 
and you could get the impression that it's a 4-1 or a 4-zip like we've seen uh, in, in recent tours for England to Australia. But it wasn't like that at all, really, because they, they, A, they win a test, the first one, and then B, uh, at Sydney uh, in the fourth test, they, they make 317. They have an 18-run lead, but then it all falls away uh, in the second innings when they're all out for 99. And then at Melbourne, there's a low-scoring thriller to, to finish where Australia win by just 32 runs. England all out for 178 in the fourth innings. So they really, that, that could have easily been sort of, you know, 3-2 the other way or 2-3 or at least. Uh, and then two years later, the MCC do stump up the cash. They do send England away uh, under the, the tutelage of Plum Warner and they turn the tables and, and win that series 3-2. So it's a bit of a yeah moment in time, that the 1901-02 Ashes series. And it started with a 4-6-4. Uh, and James Harding, you can let us know if we are close to the mark. And uh, it involved Colin Blythe on test debut. Well, that's a... So it did. That's very nice. We, we um, Adam and I, we, you know, we, we generally don't know what the other one's been working on. So, um, yeah, it's nice when it, when it all comes together yep. like that. So our next one is from Karan Shah. It's a flat $4. So mm. it's four zero zero. And uh, it comes with a brief clue. Yeah, it's uh, the somewhat cryptic clue is, quote, better than a man cat, end quote. That, that, that were Karen Shah's words. Over to you. Mm. Yes, and A is in brackets. So is it better than Mancad himself or better than a Mancad? Four. So I, I was trying to work out if this meant four or 40 or 400. It did occur to me that Vino Mancad was certainly the first Indian player to play 40 test matches. In fact, if you look at almost all the players before him, most of them played bugger all. You know, they'd played four or six or seven or, or whatever it was. And then along comes Mancat, who has a long career, starts playing test cricket in 46, plays through until 59, and is inexhaustible, basically. Um, that's that's the the takeaway from his career is how just how much work he's prepared to put in the long long stints of bowling. He's that classic right-handed bat, left-arm orthodox spinner kind of type, you know, different sorts of threats that he's able to produce. And he's he racks up 44 test matches. And so I was like, all right, who bettered that? And I remembered that Palan Amraga goes past Mankat in a bunch of categories later on. He ends up playing more test matches. He ends up making more hundreds and so on, taking these records off Mankat. So there's that. There's the fact that Mankat in 1952, he makes India's highest ever test score, which is 184 at Lords. And then that gets beaten by Amrigar in 1955 who makes 223. And then this is quite funny, that Shades of Brian Lara in this two weeks later, Mancad makes 223 himself, you know, levels it. And then a month after that in the same series, he makes 231. So he takes his record back. So I was trying to play around with, was, are there four things that Amrigar went past Mancad on in, in terms of categories? And then I just got interested in looking at, you know, Mancad stuff because why not? You know, I love that he sets India's highest score with 231 in 1955. No no one beats it until Sunil Gavaskar in 1983, and then that stands until Laxman in 2001, and then India's had 15 double hundreds since then, something like that. 15 in the last 20 years, after three in in 60 years or whatever it was, or 50 years. So, was there something about passing him in four categories that didn't really rack up? Um, Mancad made two double hundreds. Is 400 the number? being two double hundreds that doesn't really work and after throwing all this stuff around i realized it's got to be the simple answer 
better than Mancad, better than a Mancad, for Vinu is treasured in our final word pantheon for one run out at the non-striker's end, but somebody else had four. <laughs> Mavaduma. It's got to be four. It's got to be Mavaduma, doesn't it? <laughs> four. Current Shah's number just has to be four flat because Maver did it four times. And you, she, I don't think she'd heard of Vino Mancad. I don't think she was inspired by him, but she knew those were the rules and she knew those, that was what was within the laws and she knew you could knock the bales off and she did four times. And uh, that's why we had her on the show last year. Yeah, we, we were talking earlier about a, a teenage spinner in, in, in Ray Patel and hoping we hear more about him in much the same way. We hope we hear a lot more about Maeve Duma uh, over her journey. What is she, 16, right? So, And in that national team and still at school and, yes, a guest of the final word last year. That's great work, Jeff. That must be right. Looking at the clue here, better than brackets A, Brackets, man. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's it. That's mm-hmm. definitely that. It's Maver Duma. It's got to be it. But that's what made me think of um, think of this from what you were talking about before. Because when I was looking at things related to the Cameroon team, again, there is no information. You know, their 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 twenty twenty two fixtures list the results from last year, and then nothing. Um, there's yeah. no information about what might be happening next at that level of women's cricket. I trawled all through the ICC website, couldn't find anything anywhere. They have a page that's a list of team profiles. It's got 10 teams on it. You know, yeah. the main, the major teams, that's it. They're the only ones that matter, despite the fact that there are, what, over 100 teams at different levels. And look, I mean, to, to an extent that's on us, right? Like, we're part of the problem in that we, we focus all our attention at the top end of the pyramid. But, yeah, it yep. just struck me when looking at, I mean, you know, the global qualifier for the T20 World Cup this year, that's not a small thing. And there's just so little information floating around about... Um, it, look, it, it might have even been held. I don't think it's been held, but it might have even been held and we just didn't know about it. Mm-hmm. I suspect that's not the case, by the way. But, yeah, and I know that the pandemic feeds into that. Scheduling's challenging, more challenging than ever before right now. But, uh, yeah, it, it's a reminder that we sort of need to be on top of this stuff a little bit more, and, and not just us, but collectively we need to be more on top of what's happening just below that uh, that level because some teams are arriving at World Cups through this route and where, you know, mm. I suppose there'll be a couple of teams that play or one that'll go to the group in Geelong and the other in, in Tasmania at the T20 World Cup later this year. So and maybe it mm. will be Uganda. Who knows? It used to be a sentencing judge who sent you to places like that, but yes, not anymore. <laughs> On to our next number. <laughs> it comes in from friend of the show, Rudy Edsel. Hey. Uh, the number is seven dollars and twenty cents, and seven twenty. And to me, that just said a sick trick in Tony Hawk Pro Skater <laughs> back in about uh, 99, 2000, when you, there was that cheat you could do to turn the gravity mode off, and just like it was like moon gravity, and you could just put this chain of sick tricks together. But if you had gravity on, a 720 McTwist was about the best you could line up. I had a look at this, by the way. So Tony Hawk still nails this trick. At age 52, he he he, uh, he stuck a, a 720 last year, his first successful 720 for three years. So maybe he was inspired by what was going on at the Olympic Games um, last year in, in Tokyo when everyone was ripping off his old tricks and, and all the rest of it to, to win medals there. First of all, I want to say that I blame Rudy for something of an earworm for me over the last week where he was tweeting last week about the living end's extraordinary self-titled debut from back in 19... 19- 
I think I thought it was 98, but upon further inspection, 1999, I was uh, playing it to Winnie and, and singing us some songs. I, I still know that album word for word off by heart. And then I started going through a couple of the other Living End albums and stumbled upon a song I hadn't heard from Modern Artillery for, well, yeah, nearly 20 years uh, um, uh, called In The End. And I've had that just circulating in my head over and over and over again. Um, so thanks, Rudy, for that. Uh, but good, though. Nice to revisit a band that were very important to me when I was growing up. So anyway, what are we looking at here? 7.20, right. Rudy and I are the same age, uh, which means that uh, he, like me, would have been the perfect age to have watched just about every ball of the 2003 World Cup. He, like me, would have finished high school in the end of 2002. I finished in the middle of 2002 overseas, but you know my peers and, and um, the people I was going to university with were kind of in that limbo period between the end of high school and the start of uni when you get... It's kind of the longest summer, isn't it? Because you finish high school in... You know, in year 12 in like November and you don't start uni until March and it just happened mm-hmm. to be that this World Cup started I think from memory uh, at, at, at the beginning of February so you know you, you've got this wonderful uh, opportunity to indulge and watch everything it was all on Foxtel and some of it was on Channel 9 and you know set and forget every night I was living with my grandmother at the time after my grandfather passed away and she's, you know, an old Welsh woman, didn't have much time for cricket, but um, she had, had to enjoy uh, this with me because there was no way I was changing rooms. Uh, so I have fond, very, very fond memories of sitting there with my grandmother, smoking cigarettes, watching the cricket as an 18-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> it was quite, it was quite was a... I? Yeah, it was quite a fun sort of... Uh, oh, it was great. I mean, she never smoked in front of me until I was like 16 and then obviously then she smoked and then by that and by the time I was 18, I was rushing down to the shop to buy a darts for her. So anyway, <laughs> love my nan. Um, yeah, so 7.20, well, 2003 World Cup, I'm thinking 7 for 20. I said already there was only one instance of 5 for 12 in, in, um, in men's cricket. Well, there's only one instance of 7 for 20 as well, and that's Andy Bickle against England uh, in 2003, the 2nd of March. And I was thinking to myself, the 2nd of March, the 2nd of March, ah, oh, that's right. Uh, my university course started on the 3rd of March, which was a Monday, and I stayed up all night watching the cricket, of course, um, from Port Elizabeth, where Australia mm-hmm. were playing England. But the night before... I went to the Docklands. This was the Sunday night. I went to watch Hawthorne play Collingwood uh, in a pre-season game. And like a, I don't know what it was called. Was it a Wizard <laughs> Cup game or something like that? Whatever it was called oh, no. around that era or whatever it was. I wow. went along and we took it far too seriously. And I think we won by, won by a kick and we probably celebrated um, like we like won a proper game, which of course um, that was when night footy, pre-season footy felt a little bit more important than it was than it is and but we were watching on the screen in front of us in standing room there in Bay 36 where we always stand at the Docklands the cricket was on and we're just kind of cataloging fuck Andy Bickle keeps because this is before following cricket on your phone and following the scores you're just based on what you're kind of picking up on the screen and he was running amok wasn't he and, and as it went I mean I didn't realise until going back through the scorecard because I never actually watched the game because I was at the footy I only watched the second half England get a great start they're none for 66 in the 10th over so in 2003 money that's a that's a really that's a rollicking mm-hmm. start with Nick Knight doing plenty of damage but Knight's the, the first wicket 66 for one in the 10th over in Bickle's first over caught at third slip so he's away uh, and then he nicks Vaughan off uh, in his second over 72 for two he bowls NASA five balls later, 74 for three. So he's three down inside two overs. The over after that, McGrath gets Triscothic. Then Bickle's fourth over. He gets his fourth wicket. Paul Collingwood caught behind, 87 for five. England recover then when he's out of the attack. 
Flintoff um, uh, is batting nicely, gets into the 40s. As soon as Bickle's back, though, he nicks him off as well. 177 for six. Bickle has five of those six to fall. Make it six of seven uh, when he bowls Alex Stewart and he's next over, the 45th of the innings, 180 for seven. Then the first ball of his last over, he gets Ashley Giles caught at cover, seven for 20. England are 187 for eight. They don't lose another wicket between then and the end of the 50th. So he takes seven for 20. England get... 204 for 8, which is kind of stunning in its own right, really, that there's only one other wicket taken. That's that's McGrath. Uh, and there's a contrast as well. Brett Lee took none for 58 from his 9. So, you know, Bickle, they, they can't hit him off the square. They're, they're getting they're nicking everything and, and they're clouting Lee. I recall getting home in time for the chase, but one more little tidbit here. Um, I, I, I was with my dear friend, Brett Collett, who might be listening. He sometimes does. He and I were coming back to Yarraman Station together in Noble Park, where we lived in Dandenong West around the corner. And when we got back to the railway station, my stereo had been nicked while we were at this game at the Docklands. <laughs> Wasn't a particularly good stereo, but I was fucking fuming. Uh, and um, but, but after sort of the shock of that, uh, I mean, not hard to break into a 1986 VL Commodore. Um, you know, very red, had a spoiler, <laughs> had the side skirting. I mean, it's the sort of car you would break into when it was sitting abandoned seemingly at Yarraman Station Frank, on a Sunday Frankly, night. if you go to a pre-season... AFL game, you deserve to have your stereo. Yes, <laughs> yes. It was the sort of the original stereo from 1986 too. So I, I replaced it with something far better later on. But anyway, by the time I got home, I reckon Brett and I watched the second innings. And yeah, early on, Australia are in all sorts. They lose four early wickets inside what we would now call the power play. 48 for four. Ricky's the fourth of those. Caddick has all of them. Then there's consistent wickets until 135 for eight in the 38th over. And it's practically game over, but Bevan's still there. And he's joined by Bickle and they get the job done with three balls to spare. A brilliant finish. Um, Bevan gets 74 not out. Bickle, 34 not out from 36 balls. Everybody remembers that that shot you often see on Twitter with um, Rob Alinda um, posts this, this video quite often where Bick pops Jimmy Anderson, who's like 21 at the time, into the scoreboard at Port Elizabeth. Anderson uh, finishes with none for 66. Uh, that's sort of at a vital time as well to break the back of the chase. And yeah, Australia's streak continues. They go on to, to win the World Cup with Without dropping a set uh, as they did in 2007 as well. That performance probably ensured that Bickle would be the next seamer after McGrath and Lee because Gillespie was, was injured earlier in the tournament after beating India. Uh, he finished with uh, yeah, 67 one-day international, 78 wickets, but yes, never better than his 7 for 20 and uh, never better than when he was a World Cup winner in 2003. <laughs> I remember it well. I remember watching every ball of that game. It was... One of the one of the great one day internationals. We've got one more number to come. It's six dollars twenty three in greenbacks, US money from Sabarish. His clue reads uh, from my first season watching cricket. This relates to two players independently, which made it quite striking. Then this series set off a love for the game and what joy and heartbreak cricket has been. I remember recording every little statistical detail from this series and quizzing my dad about it. Well, it is funny that you should have had that story, Adam, because uh, after much back and forth and, and to and fro from longer and more complicated clues that we've eventually distilled down to this, Sabarisha's second series that he watched was not a series. It was a tournament. And funnily enough, we're going back to the 2003 <laughs> World Cup and people who took big bags of wickets in that tournament. So, <laughs> pool match. Uh, what do you know? 
England losing a shitload of wickets to one bowler. <laughs> what a surprise. India, bat first. Sachin makes 50. Driver makes 62. 250 for nine. And then remember Ashish Nehra? Yeah. Uh, left armour, big teeth. He always seemed to like lead with the teeth when he came into bowl. World Cup winner. I reckon he played in the 07 T20 World Cup to, to get India going, I'm pretty sure. He, didn't he come back and play in the 16... T20 World he was Cup playing. He was well, playing when IPL. He was like 39. Yeah, he was playing IPL as recently as when I was doing it for Talk Sports. So I mean, in the last five years, I reckon he was playing IPL. Yeah, I, I'm. I, my memory of being in India in 2016 is they brought him back as a. a a format specialist and it was quite yeah. a story because yeah. it was 13 years after playing in this World Cup. He was, at his best, he was really quick too. Like he could mm. go mid-140s, but he got injured a lot. He was he always had injury problems and so he didn't quite get to be the bowler that, that, that they thought he might be. And actually before this game, I've forgotten about this, but when reading up on it, he stepped on a cricket ball in the warm-up by Glenn McGrath, but before Glenn McGrath did it. So the original <laughs> hipster of the tripping over on a cricket ball was, was Ashish Nehra. Sprained his ankle a bit, or a bit, you know, twisted it, it was swollen, and he went buggered on playing anyway. So he, he basically spent the whole batting innings with the ankle on ice. And then Ganguly was directed by the physios. They said it, he, he can bowl you one spell. So when you start him, just keep him going. Just let him keep going. So he bowls nine overs on the trot. Um, and he comes in in about the 11th or 12th over after Srinath and Zahir Khan have had a go. And they've taken a couple of wickets. And Ashish Nara has a couple of quiet overs. And then he's the left armour just angling across right handers. They're basically, they're all right handers in that England order. Um, and he pretty much just nicks everybody off aside from, uh, well, he, he hits Stewart on the, on the front pad and he, he, blows off somebody's boot as well in the I think watching through but but everything's basically angling across the right handers nicking behind or nicking into the slip cordon and they bowl him for nine overs on the spin straight through and then he doesn't get to bowl the tenth they go that's enough but he finishes up with six for 23 which is the number sent through by Sabarish and so obviously there's got to be someone else in the tournament with a six for 23 a couple of weeks later guess where we are Port Elizabeth (laughs) (laughs) for the Super Sixers game New Zealand and Australia Shane Bond Gets Matthew Hayden caught behind in his second over. Gilchrist LBW in his third. Ponting caught at slip in his fifth. So three for 20 off six overs. Has a breather. Comes back in the 23rd. Gets Damian Martin caught behind off one that bounces. Just blasts Brad Hogg's boot clean off. That's the one I was thinking of. That was so it wasn't Naira who did that. That was a, a Shane Bond one. And Stephen Fleming just keeps him on just at that point. So ninth over, he goes straight through the freak. Ian Harvey clean bowls him with one that angles in and then straightens away. It's a horror of a delivery. And finishes up in the 29th over. He's bowled his 10 by the 29th over. Australia 88 for seven. Mm. Surely dead. <laughs> no, guess who's there? Michael Bevan and Andy Bickle. And they do it all again. <laughs> the same story as you heard against England. They put on 97 that time. Brettley hits a couple of sixes. Australia get to 208. And then Lee takes five for and bowls out New Zealand for 120-odd. But um, they still finish up with Shane Bond on six for 23. And that is what jumped out at Sabarish as a young fellow watching the cricket all those years ago. How could two bowlers in the same World Cup take six for 23? But they did. Yeah, and it's like the same tournament where two Australian quicks took seven for. So there's the, the aforementioned Bickle seven for 20. Mm. And then there's the McGrath seven for 15 against Namibia. And then there's the Lee hat trick against Kenya, who we were mm-hmm. talking about Kenya earlier. That was uh, in the... Uh, 
wasn't the semi-final, was it? Because Australia no. played. Am I conflating? Am I confusing two games there? Because uh, the semi-final Didn't really take was his hat trick. Was it against Sri Lanka? Uh, was it against Kenya in the Super Sixes? Maybe no. I can't remember. Uh, no, it was definitely against Kenya. Yeah, it was. In, um, it was so in it that tournament, and they and they didn't play in the semi because the semi was the Kenya played India in the semi final. Yeah, because Gilchrist walks against um, against Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka. Yeah, um, they must have played in the Super Six. Anyway, the point is, it was a fucking good tournament, and uh, I'm glad we've had a a couple of opportunities to reflect upon it uh, in the very long first section of today's show, which now runs at about 70 minutes on my clock, which means we should take a, a brief spell here. Uh, thank you for uh, being with us throughout. There were some good tales there, I reckon. Okay. We're going to take a breather. Got some news to break in the interval. Uh, then we'll be back with some revisits and a truckload of confirmations. This is Jeremy Coney, and I'm on the final word. We love being a member of the Woodstock cricket family. They make the best bats in the world. Blind testing last year by the cricketer. They went one and two. Very affordable bats. I should say they are so affordable that even if you get them shipped over from England to Australia, you're still ahead. If you want to get a a stick off the shelf in Australia right now, you're pretty much up for a grand. I mean, I'm talking for the the high, maybe more than that, for the high-end bats that that Grey Nick and Cooker and those guys are selling, Mm. they cost a shitload of money. Well, you can get a better bat, a Woodstock, which is handmade, handcrafted. Mm. Um, I've talked about Winnie's bat, which I'll be giving her on Sunday. It is so beautiful. I almost don't want to give it to her because I would, it's just going to become a th- another thing that she draws all over. Um, I, ha- I went to soft play with Winnie this morning and um, uh, and we were bowling to each other. She's uh, she, As in, she can get the arm above the parallel now and let the ball go, which is pretty bloody cute. Wow. So the bat to go with that. But I said before throwing so, to this... So she's, she, she's beating Kedar Chadov then. Yes, she's, well, yes, there's, a, there's, there's that. She's the, her, her release point is higher than uh, Kedar Yadav. Now, the reason I've got news to break, I wouldn't say break, but how is this? Woodstock Cricket proudly now have their first active test cricketer on the books. Welcome Josh De Silva, West Indies test and one-day keeper, to Woodstock. And here is Josh talking about his new bats last week when he signed the dotted line. Very excited to be part of the team. I'm looking forward to the next few years with them. First time I'm using it, so let's see, let's see how it goes. So here's the good news. We can all be part of this. 20% off. TFW20 is the offer code at woodstockcricket.co.uk. And Jeff, yeah, this hadn't really uh, hit home for me until looking at some bats in Australia the other week. Woodstock's all about affordability, isn't it? Like it's about not trying to price people out of the market. We know cricket's an expensive sport. It's hard to avoid that reality. We're, we're talking more and more about it at the moment. But Woodstock aren't going in that direction. They are keeping the bats affordable. So if you're in Australia, get in on this. Twenty percent off. And if you're yeah, if you're trying to buy a cricket bat that costs more than my first car, um, <laughs> it's not going to make you hit them that much better. <laughs> you know, like the the more money you spend on it, isn't actually going to make you a better player. But Having a really good bat will probably make you a better player, and, and that's what they do. And more importantly, having a bat that's suited to you. What, what do you play? What kind of game do you play? What kind of style do you need? What's, what's your physicality like? What's your height? Where do you want the weight of the bat to be? Um, mm. All of those things. They're all the kinds of things that they factor in when they do a personalised meeting with you. You can do it on Zoom. You can talk through everything that you want from a cricket bat and they will tailor it to your needs. Woodstockcricket.co.uk. There's never been a better time to get a new stick. TFW20 is the code. And if you want any further information about it, just drop us a line at finalwordcricket at gmail.com. 
Hi, my name's Kate Cross, and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam and Jeff. This is The Final Word story time. Uh, let's jump into just a couple of revisits um, because we did so many last week. We've only got two to do. We did 26. We did 26, we did 26 on 26. Monday. <laughs> Good Lord. Good Lord. Um, well, it is lovely to have 26 people who wanted to be involved with the show. Ewan McDonald, the 167, uh, I was pretty confident with this, gave it, bit, you know, the big ones about uh, Freddie Flintoff's 167 uh, with seven sixes against the Windies in 2004. Even, even better than that, something I realised afterwards that I hadn't said at the time, the number was 167. Freddie Flintoff hit 1-6 seven times. I mean, come on. It was all oh. too perfect. But but Ewan said no. He said, uh, try a decade or so earlier. And he also said he, he, he needs to give away his slab, his Brick Lane slab, because he doesn't know anyone in Australia. So if you want it, get on the Discord where Ewan is and tell him your greatest cricketing achievement and he will decide who he's going to give it to. So, so if you're not a patron, you just sign up and then you can get on the Discord channel and you can A, win a slab from us and B, win a slab from Ewan. There are just slabs being thrown out the door at this point. Yeah, and I, and I added a couple of people to Discord last night who hadn't quite worked out how to get there via the, the Patreon page. So Elliot Diamond and Ian Wollstonehome uh, have both joined us there uh, on, on Discord. Uh, welcome to you both. Uh, but yes, this is the this is an opportunity for more free beer, so why not take him up on that? As for the 167, Ewan McDonald, if it's a decade earlier, than, than uh, about a decade earlier than, than 2004, and an innings that he described as the one that made him fall in love with cricket, it has to be Robin Smith's 167, doesn't it? Uh, from the 1993 Texaco Trophy, which were the one day is that, that England played against Australia before the 93 Ashes, so they were played through May. This 167, of course, was the England record for a really long time, actually. I think it stood until Alex Hales broke it against Sri Lanka in 2016. That's my that's my recollection. And yeah, this was the era of 55 over one day internationals in whites. It was before England moved to, <laughs> to coloured clothing. I think they first wore coloured clothing in 1998 before the, the 99 World Cup for their home one day is, but um, yeah, even though Smith made that, that huge score, England still lost, of course. It was 1993. That score was made out of 277 for five in just 163 balls. So um, that was seen as like completely freakish in that era. But yeah, he was um, cutting McDermott everywhere before Billy went home. Merv Hughes, Paul Rifle, Tim May, and both of the War Brothers were in that attack. No warn. But I loved looking at the bowling analysis. You know, McDermott, three for 29 from 11, uh, you know, which kind of uh, is part of the 55-over game as it was back then. <laughs> um, Australia get the runs but in... Why 55-overs? Fi- it's so... That's just so random. Like, what... Well, it was 60, I remember. Know. I mean, this is the point. It was yeah. 60 then, because originally one day cricket, I mean, the idea was you get a full game in, so thus the 120 yeah. overs and, and all the rest and you can play late into the night in England but yes we, we, we had a standardised more or less standardised 50 overs from about oh I wonder when the last 50, 55 over one day international was played I reckon they go for a couple of more years after that and I think by 97 they were just doing 50 over games in England anyway someone will let us know that uh, in the comments I'm sure but yeah Australia got to their victory target of 278 in 53.3 overs which is quite quirky Mark War made a century Alan Border 86 not out from 96 a huge chase uh, at the time it put Australia 2-0 up they went on to win 3-0 and we all know what happened in, in the ashes thereafter and for mine again it just sort of reinforces why we should have the one day as at the start of these ashes trips in 93 97 2000 
2001, 2005 especially, it really built that great expectation because they're playing the one day is through May and June and the Ashes went starting till sort of July, August. I know we didn't have uh, one day internationals uh, in, in 2019 because the World Cup preceded it. But even that, the World Cup coming before um, the, the Ashes in, in 19 provided its own context for the Australian tourists having a couple of months in the country before playing the first test. So if they do schedule one day as uh, to go alongside the test in 2023, I hope they play them first. For Robin Smith, of course, we did a whole show about him really uh, with Rob Smythe who um, wrote his autobiography with him. That's back in the in the uh, in the archives. Search November 2019, Jeff. I reckon we did that mm-hmm. interview with Rob when I was in Tassie. So that would have been yeah November 19. It's well worth uh, reading that that fabulous book that that Rob wrote for Robin. It's called The Judge, of course, that being his nickname. And yeah, worth listening to that interview too with Rob Smythe, who, who goes into a lot of detail about the challenges that Smith had after cricket. Uh, 62 Test matches for over 4200 runs and another uh, 2,400 runs in one-day cricket at 39 and a strike rate of 70. That's a really, really good record for a mid-90s, early 90s, mid-90s, one-day international player, four centuries, never more than his one six seven. I suppose he was still smarting from his omission from the, the World Cup final team in, in 1992, which is detailed in that in that aforementioned book. Uh, and I'm sure that per Ewan's clue, he's one of many thousands of, of uh, young people around the country who fell in love with batting uh, via the Robin Smith cut. Very good. And uh, the other revisit, which I'm very relieved that I finally got, is Jeremy Brown's 96. Uh, We were talking about Ponting making 96 on debut, then we were talking about the summer of 1996. Uh, third crack at it, but uh, I think Jeremy's earned it with <laughs> given the scope of the pledge. Yeah, and, and, and there's a further clue here. So he, he finished listening to Storytime 78. Um, he enjoyed what we did. He goes on to say, but my clues have come across as more cryptic than intended. The number 96 refers to a summer's worth of individual moments, not the summer itself. The number has been tangentially discussed on the final word though I'll add that according to many of your listeners, the number should be 80. I've always admired your love and joy in cricket and contest as opposed to a love of Australian cricket. I'm not so noble. (laughs) Okay. Well, at last it twigged for me. 96. 96. Across the summer. And I was thinking of 2013-14 when people made a big deal about the fact that the Australians took all 100 wickets across the Ashes series. And I thought, hmm, hmm. So could you get a whitewash while only taking 96 wickets, I thought. And then I realised, well, you could if you declared at some point. Ah, amazing Adelaide. Jeremy, Jeremy says the number, a lot of our listeners say the number should be 80 because uh, they don't think <laughs> that Adelaide exist. happened. Um, <laughs> Because England lost 16 wickets in Adelaide because they declared it six down in their first innings. Thus, across the Ashes series in 2006-07, they lost 96 wickets in being whitewashed that time around. Uh, An Ashes series in which McGrath took 21, Warren took 23, Lee took 20. And I'd kind of forgotten this. Stuart Clark led all comers in that series, 26 wickets at 17, without taking a fifer. So he's, he took a best of four, but he took two or three in almost every innings. He had one innings with a one for, and everything else was two, three or four. Innings after innings, test after test. So he ended up 
topping the wicket tally with that amazing average without taking a big bag at any point. Yeah, and this will sound weird, but he was under bowled at Adelaide as well, Clark. So on that first day, uh, which I was there for in in, uh, in December 06, he bowled beautifully and sent down like 16 overs. They kept throwing the ball to Warner McGrath and uh, they weren't able to sort of quite do the job on, on that sort of tough first day and it stretched into a very long second day as well uh, once, once Collingwood got hold of them. Yeah, I love this. Well done, Jeremy. Yes, the idea of uh, a lot of people think it should be 80. Uh, beautifully done uh, yeah and um, it comes back all the way to the start as well doesn't it too at the start of the show we were talking about the 90 wickets that Australia took uh, in the Ashes series of uh, 1901-02 where, where Trumbull and Noble took two thirds of them well yeah Stuart Clark, uh, was he player of the series for that or was it Ponting for his runs? I think it might have been Ponting for his runs, but oh, it easily could have been. It? It, I mean, it easily could have been Clark. Uh, is the point? Uh, what a mm-hmm. what a great start to his career. I think he was twenty nine when he debuted against South Africa in uh, in two thousand and six. So he timed his run beautifully in the lead up to that series, and and uh, yeah, still uh, does a lot of work in and around the game, and and appears on television and radio around the world doing various bits and pieces. So yeah, one of the good guys. Andrew Simons took two wickets as well, I should mention. Don't want to leave him out. Uh, he picked up Flintoff and Geraint Jones in one of the test matches. Um, but, yeah, that was aside from that, it was all the quartet. But they didn't take all 100, uh, and Jeremy Brown presumably enjoyed every one of those 96 wickets. So, so thanks, Jez. And uh, on to the confirmations. We've got uh, a number that we got right. Yes, quite a few of these today. We'll skip through them as quickly as we can. Uh, the first was Jeffrey Gabriel, uh, the 604. Eventually, we said Graham Hughes, the blue bagger with the double blue. Uh, Jeffrey says, kudos to Humphrey B. Bear for giving Adam the answer on Hawk headquarters to my nerd pledge. I figured it would take someone from north of the Barassi line to help you. Um, one other thing about Graham Hughes's career was that he became the lead commentator for Channel 10's rugby league coverage in the 1980s and 1990s. Roy and HG nicknamed him the Trout at the time. Amazingly, while being the lead caller for rugby league, he kept playing club cricket and dominated Sydney first grade, topping the averages as late as the early 1990s. So good stuff. Thanks, uh, Jeffrey. That that was a, a number we took about three goes at, but uh, I'm pleased we got there at the end and got to tell the story uh, of one Graham Hughes. Uh, VJ has confirmed the the two forty one that you talked about a few weeks ago. Adam is indeed the uh, the SCG Tendulkar. Uh, test match, the no cover drives 241, which he said was a, a memorable game. Uh, Ed Fowler, who had 418 as his number, but it was interacting with uh, 247 from memory. In the end, we, we worked out that it was probably James Hildreth uh, because uh, even though his first class batting average has dropped to 41.3, when he sent the pledge through, it was 41.8. And Ed says here, spot on, I completely forgot that his average was live and would change. Face palm moment. Not really, Ed. It's probably on us for taking four or five months to get to your pledge, but we're skittling through them as quickly as we can. Richard Jantz Moore says his 2801 in Swedish Krona was indeed the batting average of Brian Reynolds, Northants opener of the 1960s. <laughs> You've nailed it. He said, I only listened to the intro, but I'm seeing my dad this weekend, so I'll listen to the rest with him then. Nice. Which is very nice because uh, Richard's dad used to play golf with Brian Reynolds. Beautiful, beautiful. 414, Lancashire Sam Ashworth. Uh, we talked about Alex Hartley and Sophie Eccleston and their best bowling of four for 14 and sharing that as two Lancashire 
Lancastrians. Uh, he says, yes, of course it was Hartley and Eccleston. I decided I was going to do a Hartley number after Rory Burns stuck his oar in and then noticed she had the same best bowling in an innings as Eccleston, albeit in a different format. So that seemed a good one to go for. On a related point, I thought it was pretty noticeable how many more of the men commented on the under-19s Boys World Cup when pretty much none of them seemed to push the women's ashes, especially considering all the boys do to support the women's game. That's a reference to to that um, ill-considered Rory Burns tweet from last year. And I must say, Sam, I noticed that too. There were a lot of messages on social media um, from the England men's team wishing the, the 19s well. And absolutely, that's appropriate. But yeah, I mean, where was that for the women's ashes? I appreciate they would have been licking their wounds after what had happened at Hobart, but uh, there, there could be more on, on that front uh, in, in keeping with kind of how Burns framed it up last year. But the one exception there, of course, being that Jimmy Anderson was tweeting constantly about the women's ashes, and and I believe Joe Root was um, very supportive behind the scenes as well. Jake Sheedy's number of five thirty four. Adam said Nathan Lyons five for thirty four on debut. The clue was the kid. Jake says my five for thirty four was indeed Gary. If he is now the goat, then on debut he would have been a kid. <laughs> uh, in a strange and random sequence of events, I met with a bloke in Japan who grew up with him. I banged on about how unappreciated Lion was pre-Wade. I must have made an impression because he sent me a signed jersey a few months later. <laughs> nice one, Jake. Good story. I can definitely see Nathan doing that. Uh, 301 uh, was Scott Lamprecht's uh, 301 Launceston test caps. Jeff got to 300. He was missing Kristen Beams, who takes it from 300 to 301 test caps. So that's Boone 107, Ponting 168, Bailey takes it to 280, uh, Ted McDonald up to 291 with his 11, uh, James Faulkner with his one cap back into 2013 Ashes, Greg Campbell, who played four test matches in the late 80s, and Alex Doolan, who played four test matches in 2014. And then there was Kristen Beams, another player from Launceston. 301, lovely work. And I always thought that Kristen Beams grew up in Melbourne and then moved to Tasmania, but it must have been the other way around that she came over to Melbourne because she played club cricket in Melbourne, played for Essendon and ended up as a Melbourne Stars player and all the rest of it. It yeah. was a very Melbourne cricketer and I thought she'd moved to Tasmania later in life, but no, yeah, started yeah. in Launceston. And between you doing that clue and and, uh, and us doing this revisit, I got to spend a lot of time with Alex Doolan in Tasmania. He was commentating with us on SEN uh, during um, that Hobart test. He was excellent, so I, I hope we hear more from Duels. He's, um, he's a, a really good commentator. Yeah, so we've got Darcy Matthews next. Uh, this one, this is lovely. Darcy pledged 345. The clue was one word, serendipity. Uh, Adam somehow got to the 45-run margin in the first test and the centenary test, even though that was only two tests and the number was 345. Somehow Adam bullshitted his way through into a reason why this was an acceptable answer, yeah. right? And we were like, all right, fuck it. We've got nothing else. We'll just go with this. Shannon Blackmore, another, mes- uh, another listener, sent us through a message a couple of weeks later. He said, given the mention of serendipity, might it be worth noting that an archaic name for Sri Lanka is Serendib, from which Horace Walpole coined the term serendipity, perhaps related to a Sri Lankan score of 345. And I was like, Jesus, this is some tangential shit here. Where are we going with this? And then Darcy comes through with uh, the confirmation. He says, 
you were absolutely correct. Correct in that I pledged a random number, then asked a friend of mine for an interesting word to be the clue, a word I still don't know the meaning of. I knew you guys would be able to create something entertaining. <laughs> Job well done. Make the 150-year match happen. Ah, uh, yes. So, complete <laughs> bullshit from Darcy Matthews, who just completely stitched us by sending a random number with a random clue, and we ran ourselves around in circles for a couple of weeks chasing our tails trying to figure out what it meant. It didn't mean anything. Uh, we, we Life to, doesn't mean anything. We've got one that came in last week like that, except that the, the new pledger, I'm afraid I don't remember their name off the top of my head, but it was, um, I'm just giving you a number and I want you to tell me what this means. I quite like the idea of that. It's like the next the next stage of Nerd Pledge. Yeah. Where if, you, if you just don't want to think too much about it, you want to get a story that relates to the number, we're very happy to, to do it that way. And on that, by the way, but that's how I got 340. People 340- have done that and, and that's fine because we know that's what we're doing. Yes. But it's when we think there is an answer. No, no, no. That's right. And I should say, by the <laughs> way, that, cruel, that, that's how we got to 345, remember. We said that our next bit will be trying to make sure they have a 150th anniversary test match, which isn't that far away, mm-hmm. and for that to have a margin of 45 it's runs five as well. Years away. I know that you're not too into 150s as a rule, but I think we can make an exception here, and we mm. should be campaigning for it, and that's a good reminder. I am going to write a column about this when I um, get into the groove again uh, through the course of 2022. We've got five years. That's all we've got. We've got five but years. The well, FTP, but the FTP yeah. so fucks, and uh, like we're going to have to get them to agree to this in the next year or two. Or no, that's what happen. I'm saying. We've only It's only five years yeah. away. It's, yeah. a, it's a very short time away. In fact, we'll 2027 would be an Ashes year in England, wouldn't it? Uh, so, good point. But if we want to have it in March, I mean, I, I would say needs, it needs to be in Australia. A March night, a March 2027 one-off Test match. I mean, you know, mm. they did do the bicentenary Test, of course, in in 87, 88. That was a one-off. Mm. Anyway, uh, next. Imagine, imagine if Mitchell Marsh got to play in the bicentenary. Oh, be still beating heart. He'd only be 30. <laughs> Five or something. He could still be in, in contention. Let's hope he is. 221 was Andrew Beach. Uh, Jeff said the 2007 World Cup with Mpofu from Zimbabwe batting with a his cap backwards underneath his helmet at the end when they tied that game. Uh, and he says, uh, uh, you're right. Um, uh, with cap backwards, uh, they were scenes. They, they sure were. <laughs> Maybe it was like the original version of the the stem guard that they wear now. If you could just get the bill of the cap poking out, to, well, it might to, it might take, it might take some pace off. It's not not a crazy well, idea. You know, a, a, a homemade um, addition to the helmet. Christopher and Pofu ideas, man. <laughs> uh, Craig Moore's three forty five. I talked about Charlie McCartney. Obviously, the original clue was this. So, so I, I I got the number right, but there were parts of the clue we didn't understand. And the clue was this: very quick. Cuz your granddad didn't get a chance till 51. Craig, uh, former soccer skipper, obviously, Craig Moore, uh, writes in to say, you nailed it, Charlie McCartney. Yes, loved hearing you talk about him. The reason I mentioned Cuz was because he is my cousin, not that we ever met, unfortunately. My great-great-grandfather and Charlie's grandfather was George Moore. And given we've discussed family trees on the final word previously, Craig, I can tell you that this means that you are first cousins twice removed. Uh, George Moore, says Craig, I thought debuted for New South Wales at 51. Well, I looked into this, Craig, and George Moore debuted 40 days shy of his 51st birthday for New South Wales. This was in 1850-something. He's a round-arm bowler came from Bedfordshire, emigrated, opened a bakery in Maitland, New South Wales, uh, was 32, 
played some rep games for New South Wales that weren't first class. And then in 1870, there's the year, they started playing proper intercolonial cricket with 11s, 11 aside. So here's this. Here's a little bit for you. He batted at 11 and put on a 33-run stand with Charles Bannerman in that game. Played three matches, took 15 wickets at 12, played his last match of any kind of cricket in Maitland, age 74, lived until 96, and taught his grandson, Charlie McCartney, how to play cricket with a handmade bat. There's also another uh, first-class grandson of his, Frank Cummins, who's not related to Pat, but he had the middle name of Septimus, which must mean that he was the seventh child. Uh, So he had two first-class cricketing grandsons, did George Moore, one of whom was Charlie McCartney, who made 345 in a day at Knott's and ended up being related well down the line to our pledger, Craig Moore, who definitely did not captain the Socceroos. That is what it's all about. Thank you, Craig Moore. Brilliant stuff. You as well, Jeff. Uh, And our last confirmation was uh, Sean Barry. Uh, We were talking about you and Chatfield. Well done, lads. My 5-3-4 was you and Chatfield. The Nene Express. Uh, Here he is with friend of the show, JV Coney, in last week at stand to see off the Pakistanis in 85. Start from 31 minutes if you want to see Lance Can scone by Wazium as well. I've done that. It was fantastic. Fucking magnificent. It's not the best footage. It's not everything I wanted. Um, there's only about 20 seconds that relates to the final ball. I wanted 20 minutes. I wanted all the interviews. Mm-hmm. I wanted everything. But uh, I did get to see that ball to Lance Cairns. Goodness gracious me. And reminder that you and Chatfield actually helped stretch him off the field before walking out himself, remembering the backstory with Chatfield. That must have been um, quite the experience for him. But there he was at the end, 21 not out, uh, alongside our, our great mate Jeremy Coney. Uh, he's probably his finest innings for New Zealand uh, in that win over Pakistan uh, in 1985. Well, that is the end of an epic story time. If you've made it through to the end, thank you for sticking with us. We had a lot to cover this weekend. We'll have the Final Word weekly show back probably Wednesday next week. Yep. I'd say that's safe to bet. And story time on the weekends thereafter as we settle into a rhythm for the next couple of weeks before we disrupt it entirely by going to Pakistan, <laughs> which we are doing. Uh, Adam and I will, you'll hear from us from there. But uh, for the next couple of weeks, business as usual, hopefully, if you want to play Nerd Pledge, if you want to get involved, go to patreon.com slash the final word. You can help us keep making the show. You can stand a very good chance of winning a free slab of Brick Lane and you can get yourself involved in Nerd Pledge on the show. Speaking of business, I mentioned this on the weekly show. Uh, if you want to work with us in Pakistan, uh, it's no secret to say that our daily shows do extremely well in terms of downloads. Um, they all do, but the, the, the daily shows especially because they're short and sharp and people like to listen to our sum up of the day. Get in touch because we uh, haven't uh, got around to signing a partner for that as yet. So if you want your company or your brand to, to be on the final word every single day of the, the Pakistan trip, and that'll include uh, Jeff and me doing something of a travel log. We're not just going to record uh, on playing days. We're going to try and record every day. We're in Pakistan. Uh, drop us a line, finalwordcricket at gmail.com and let's see whether we can do a deal. I'm not signing up for every day. I'm going to say some of the days. I'll rope in. If we agree to do 25 shows, I'll rope in someone else when you can't be asked. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This has uh, been the final word. It's on the Bad Producer Podcast Network, edited by Dave Collins and listened to by you. Uh, thank you. Congratulations. I'm sorry. I, I'm not sure what to say at this point. Jeff Lemon, Adam Collins, signing off. We'll see you next time. Have a nice weekend. I had to go about it, write it out, and find out.